for the podcast that uh, you'll find the handout uh, in a link in the podcast in your podcast player. So look for that if you want to download that and print it off so you're able to follow along as we uh, move into uh, the fourth session. Yes, the fourth session that we've uh, we've got going. So I'm going to have to change the vernacular because your handout says week three, but it took me three weeks to do the first two sessions. And so we're in session four. That's what we'll start calling it from now on. Um, let me open us in prayer. Father God, I'm... Um, I'm encouraged tonight, encouraged as I got to walk around uh, downstairs in the multi-purpose room and just spend time with these brothers and sisters and with my family, uh, encouraged to sit down at a table where they were um, having really good, sharpening, theological, biblical, historical conversation as applied to some of the challenges that we see in the world around us going on uh, right now in this week. Um, I love seeing your sons and daughters wrestle well um, with the life that they've been given and the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Father, I'm so grateful that through both general revelation and through this very special and specific revelation of your word, you've made clear that you exist and that you are clear about the kind of God that you are yesterday, today, and forever. And so use this time together to encourage us, uh, to draw comfort from your reality and from your character. We love you so much, Father, and we we speak these things, we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Uh, what is theology? What's our, what's our special definition of theology beyond the study of God? Andrea. to every area of our lives. Yep. It is the application of scripture by humans <laughs> to every to persons to every area of our lives. Uh, tonight we are going to talk about the existence and attributes of God. Parentheses part 1 of an undetermined number of parts. Um, and uh, what I want to say at the outset, what, what strikes me as I was uh, looking over uh, these notes this afternoon is, uh, again, this won't be exhaustive, uh, So, and, and I didn't bring Frame's systematic theology up with me, but remember that was, you know, I think it's 13 or 1400 pages, Grudem's on my shelf is 1500 and some pages. We won't have the time, and we could spend a whole year, a couple of ses semesters just on the attributes of God. Um, so we're, we're going to look at some of the attributes of God, talk about them in brief, just to get a sense of, of who he is. So over the last few weeks, we've noted that what marks God out from among all the other false gods uh, in the world and throughout history is that he actually speaks. We see over and over in the prophets, right, in the Old Testament, all the other gods, they, they have no eyes, no ears, no mouth, they're not real gods. Our God has graciously revealed himself through the written word, the Bible, and through the word made flesh, Jesus, Messiah. And this revelation, the Bible is true, it's trustworthy, it's sufficient, it's clear, it's necessary. It does not and cannot lead us astray. The Bible is our final authority, the final arbiter in all matters of faith and practice, it is our final authority. Not the church, not human reason, reasoning, or our subjective impressions or experiences. The Bible is the final authority. We want to be Bible people. When you make arguments, whatever your arguments are, 
always bring them back to the word. Be thinking about how they are flowing from what you know of God and the authority he's given us in his word. As we begin now this third topic of the existence and attributes of God, there are two questions that lie at the foundation of not only religious knowledge, but also of every possible form of knowledge. Number one, is there a God? Number two, what is God like? So is there a God? Related to this could be, how can we know? And number two, what is he like? What are his attributes? So these are the questions that we're going to give ourselves to tonight and at least next week. Is there a God? What is he like? First thing having to do with God's existence is um, I just want to bring up the idea of presuppositions again. We've talked about we can have, it's okay to have presuppositions when you're having an argument, right? And the biblical presupposition itself is that there is a God. The Bible doesn't spend time explicitly arguing for God's existence. Like it doesn't open up by saying, let me defend that I am. The Bible just says, in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God. The Bible presupposes and presumes that God exists. It's a biblical given in the same way that pre-existence of matter is a given for the materialist. The Bible treats God's existence like gravity. We can deny it, ignore it, or pretend it doesn't exist, but to our own peril. Every worldview begins somewhere. And as we discussed in week number one, the Christian worldview begins with these two premises that we're operating with. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, he is there and he is not silent. Okay, so that's true. He exists. And we can presuppose that just like the Bible does. But if someone were to ask you, how do you know that God exists? You should think about that. What would you say? So that's a reasonable question. It's a valid question. If we are Christians, we can say that we believe God is really there because he has revealed himself in at least the following four ways. Generally, he's revealed himself generally to all men and women by creation and providence. Propositionally, in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, personally in his son and our king, Jesus, the Messiah, and savingly through the work of his word and the Holy Spirit. So someone says, how do you know God exists? You could say generally by creation and providence, propositionally in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, personally in his son, Jesus, the Messiah, and savingly through the work of his word and spirit. Scripture testifies to these things. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one that you have sent, Jesus, Messiah. 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his son, Jesus Messiah. He is the true God and eternal life. So this is, uh, many of you will know this example, maybe all of you. I've said this in at least one sermon since I've been here at Grace. This is, this is, the, this is the question that my children, every one of them, have asked me. And I think all of them asked me as I was laying them out of bed and saying the blessing over them. It's amazing the questions that your children will ask you. I think in large part just to not have to go to sleep. Can I come up with a really good question that's going to cause dad to give me a 30-minute answer? Which isn't too hard for this father because all my answers are like 30 minutes. Um, how, How do you know, daddy? How do you know? How do you know it's true? How do you know he is? And my answer to that question has always been rooted in the reality of Jesus. So my answer to them is always something along the lines of, 
I believe that he exists. I believe in the scriptures because there was a man unlike any other man who came to this earth and lived a perfect life and died. And he said he was going to die. And he rose from the dead. And there were multiple witnesses, 500 of them. Even when Paul was writing, he said, they're still alive. If you want to test the story, they're still alive. Go talk to them. They saw him. There were witnesses that when he rose from the dead, can you imagine this? People were busting out of their graves and walking around, right? Like we forget that bit of the story sometimes. I just read that again when I was reading uh, in, in the Gospels. And that man then ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that man said that these scriptures were true. So because that man, who was like, unlike any other man, believed these scriptures, and he rose from the dead, that's why I believe. That's, that's where all my hope is anchored. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one, and we are in the true one in his son, Jesus Messiah. He is the true God and eternal life. Yes, generally, number one, generally. Number two, propositionally in the scriptures of the Old New Testaments. Number three, personally in his son. And that for me is the one, right? Like that really is, is the most important. And then savingly through the work of his word and spirit. You had a question, Gary? No, I was just... That, was that it? Oh, sorry. <laughs> you were helping him get his question. <laughs> he doesn't look over here. He just looks over there. In the first chapter of Romans, speaking to the idea of generally to all men by creation and providence. And, and for some of us, well, I guess it's been since last... Well, it's been a year already, so maybe we don't remember this. When we were in Romans 1, God has made the fact of his existence plain to all humanity. Romans 1, 18 to 20. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's the truth? That what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. And this is such a remarkable sentence. I mean, it makes sense, but it's still on its face. It looks like it doesn't. For his invisible attributes, <laughs> that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. Which, on his face, right? You go, wait a second. His invisible, they're invisible. How can they be seen? Well, because you're seeing, in essence, what Paul is saying is you're seeing the manifestation of them, the implications of them. His power in nature, is, divine nature, is seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. Because all of this is, points to a powerful, divine, eternal creator. And as a result, Paul says, people are without excuse. Creation cries out that there is a God. Who is it that sends the rain? And the sun. Who is it that blankets the earth in darkness and then unleashes the sun by turning this globe? Who is it that separates the land from the sea? We see God's hand as the intelligent creator from the order of the seasons as he sprinkles gold across our valley. Isn't it amazing? How can you not? We are driving. Um, went up to St. Elmo with some friends from Grace and, uh, and then there's this little road over like to Tin Cup Pass and then uh, we started driving down on the other side of the river from Tin Cup Pass and I don't know what this road was but we start going through these aspens that are gold and it's like these trees have been turned on. Right? Like it, it's not like they're reflecting. It's like the sun is somehow getting in them almost and then just exploding from the leaves. And all of that screams God. Amen. Just screams that there is a God. But then you can look 
and, 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 right, and, and we're looking at that just spread across our mountains, like the sun going outside of clouds and the mountain just kind of dims and then the sun would break out and then whoomph, <laughs> like all this gold just exploding. So you see that? And then as we're walking along the path, you see this teeny little purple flower. But then you get down on your hands and your knees and you look at this teeny little purple flower and you see pestles and stems and, and, and you see the little dust of pollen and like in the, the intricacy of this tiny little thing. And then we, we can spend time with our friends at a campfire the other night and, and then we're driving home and we, we park in the garage and we come out the door and you look up and there's innumerable stars in this black sky, just like blanketed. So from golden leaves to tiny purple flowers to ginormous galaxies. It's all declaring that there is a God. Anybody watch Planet Earth? Yes. And then, and then all of their sequels, right? Um, you, you go from Planet Earth and you see the grandeur of creation with all these amazing, you know, you just get to go around the whole world, right? Like you get to go down to the deepest of waters. And, and, then, and then there was another series called Tiny. Anybody see this? It's, they actually like were able to create little like 6K cameras. And so you're going into ant hills, And so it was like from the grand, you're like, now we're going to show you some of the tiniest creatures that exist. And like all of it, again, declaring God. And you watch hours and hours of these documentaries and you never hear anything about who? About God. Why? Because despite this revelation in creation, Paul goes on to say in Romans that man will willfully suppress the truth and exchange it for a lie and worship the natural world instead of the one who made it. Will vaunt the natural world over the pinnacle of creation, which is humanity, the image bearers of God, and create a religion called climate change and create high priestesses of and high priests of this religion because in the absence of accepting the reality of God, we will create gods. But there's not just creation. There's also conscience that declares who God is because we are made in God's image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Something of his moral character remains in us. Though our consciences aren't a perfect guide because they've been corrupted by the fall, our concerns for morality, justice, knowledge, truth, they too point us back to a creator. And while creation and conscience ought to be reason alone to convince us that God exists, the fact that we suppress the truth in our fallen state has led Christians to formulate theistic proofs, arguments for the existence of God. This is a good thing. They're incredibly brilliant men and women who, who are wonderful defenders of the faith. And, and there's, whole, you know, there's a whole core seminar that I have the curriculum for on um, apologetics, right? Which is the, it, it, making an apologia, a defense of the faith. There are reason, we can reason this out. You read, um, if you want an introductory uh, work on this, read The Reason for God. Uh, by Tim Keller, which is a, a double entendre of providing reasons and the reason, right? We can reason out a defense of God. It is rational to believe in God's existence. Never use the phrase, please, blind faith. Christians don't exercise blind faith. It's not who we are. We have eyes wide open faith. We engage our minds and our intellect. What's that? Once we're blind, right? Exactly. We don't we don't check our brains at the door as Christians. God is not merely our imaginary friend, and thus relegated to the realm of myth and superstition. He can be defended reasonably. I looked up in this in the apologetics curriculum, just to give you some examples. We're not going to talk about these in detail, but I wanted to give you some examples of, just so you know that they're out there, six arguments that, that um, one of the 
the core seminar sessions works through six arguments for the existence of God. So one is probability. Every day we exercise faith, and it's, it's reasonable to have faith in the supernatural by, by means of probabilities. Creation and design. So creation by an intelligent designer is more intellectually plausible than creation by random chance. And there's all kinds of teleological and cosmological arguments bound up in creation and design. You can read whole books on intelligent design as a, as a practice and study. Anthropic arguments, things about ourselves, conscience, capacity for good and evil, yearning for eternity, religious experiences are best explained by the existence of God. An argument from immaterialism, the existence of immaterial things. What is love? What is beauty? Demonstrate that we do not live in a merely materialistic universe. The transcendental argument, knowledge, logic, science, etc., are only possible because God's existence is a precondition for all thinking and knowledge. And then an ontological argument. God is the being greater than which cannot be conceived. Greatest being conceivable possesses the attribute of existence, therefore God exists. So those are all complex, um, apologetic, philosophical arguments, and boy, wouldn't it be fun to... Yeah, we have lots of course seminars we can do. So any, any comments or questions so far? Uh, just, just a comment in general. I don't remember who I was listening to. It's been a while, but they, they were saying that like in the... 18th and 19th century that scientists you know were very I wouldn't say very biblically based but they had a biblical worldview that was a lot stronger than it is now where they were would like do their experiments and thesis based off of biblical principles and basically show that God is there whereas now it's all just pure science and man based Mm -hmm. you know it's like they've inverted and it's just it's weird is how they can go from a, a theory of understanding and learning and saying that man can't create or do this or X, Y, and Z, that there has to be something to now man is the maker of all. Man is, you know, man is responsible for everything. It's just that whole paradigm shift. Is just yeah. 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 <clears throat> all right. General and special revelation. All knowledge of God rests on revelation. Though we can never know God in the full richness of his being, he is known to all people through his revelation in creation, which John Calvin described as the theater of his glory. Love that. The world is never godless despite what atheists would like to believe. Humans will always and ever create gods for themselves if they deny, reject, and rebel against the one true God. Just read history or look around you. This distinction between what is known about God to all generally and what is known about him specially is often referred to as general versus special revelation. So general revelation is a bit what we just have have already talked about. It's that unveiling of God, the knowledge of God's being and will, which is given to all people everywhere at all times through the ordinary experience of just being alive in this world. Special revelation is how God has made himself known by particular acts and words, especially the word of the master, the scripture, and the word, and the master of the word, Jesus Messiah. So that's special revelation. So what we just see all around us, it's part of being alive in God's world, and then his special revelation is acts and his words, as in the Bible and from Jesus. Um, I do want to take you to one spot. Turn your Bibles to Acts. We've already been to Romans 1. That's, you know, you can read all of Romans 1 and following to see an argument that Paul makes there. But Acts 17, Acts 17, 22 And this is, this is just a, this is Paul arguing in this case. So it's just an example of you to see, like, what does it look like for a Christian to argue in a secular environment for the reality of God? 
Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and worshiping the ob- and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Because <laughs> we don't want to make sure we have all our bases covered, right? That's what that is. We don't want to inadvertently not worship a God who demands worship and suffer the consequences of that. Therefore, says Paul, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by humans' hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath in all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek him out and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move, and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. And isn't that remarkable? He, he's reading the writers of the day. Why? So he can make connections and arguments. He's aware of what people believe around him and quotes their authors back to him. What a brilliant move. For some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then, we are God's offspring. That poet was right. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So what did he just do there? What we just said. There's a general revelation. There's a special revelation that's made known by God in the scriptures and by the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, Jesus Christ. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. I think it's, when you read the story of the spread of the church in the first century, what I think you have to come away with, at least this, is that there is a power in the passionate proclamation of the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God in the person and work of Jesus Messiah. They, yes, at times, certainly, did they want to kill them? Did they drag them out and attempt, you know, outside of the, the city walls and, Yes, but that's still a response. <laughs> they, were, they got a response, whether it was a response of, hmm, we'd like to hear from you again about this, or we want to kill you, whether that was a response from Jews or Gentiles. There was this, don't, <laughs> don't deny the power of speaking in exactly the same way that Paul does here. Right? These are very simple arguments but he spoke of them with conviction and it drew people in. We'd like to hear more. I bet they were asked, who, who is this man that you are talking about that was appointed, that, raised, that was raised from the dead? Because maybe they don't know. They haven't heard yet. And some people even joined him in that moment and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. General revelation pointing to the reality around you and special revelation are wonderful arguments to make that God is the creator, that he's eternal and independent, that he's invisible and powerful, that though he's distinct from the universe, he is active in it, that he sustains all things, that he is the moral ultimate source of our values. These are the kinds of things that Paul is arguing for. The Bible says all these things We ought to know naturally simply by the fact we are made in his image and live in this world that he's made. One clear implication of this is that general revelation renders human beings guilty. We cannot escape God. 
Outside of us, the created order screams at us. Do you not see? Do you not understand? There is a God who created you and you're accountable to him. We can close our eyes and plug our ears, but that will not change reality. And inside our own heads, our consciences do not give us any rest. And evangelistically, you can count on that. You can count on that, whether people will admit it to you or not. That's what Paul is counting on. That's what he's tapping into, I believe. Most humans who are not yet believers in God cannot escape the sense that there is something inherently wrong in this world. That there is something wrong with such things as cheating, sexual immorality, pornography, human trafficking. That there is something wrong when they see Hamas militants drag people from a music festival, drag families from their homes, torture and kill them, and parade them through the streets, do public gang rapings of women, behead over 40 infants. You are going to hear a lot in the news if you're paying attention to the news, you're hearing it and you're going to hear people say that's evil. And as Christians, one of our first questions should be, by what standard are you making that determination? How do you know that's evil? How do you know that's not right? Why do you think you get to say that? Who are you to define that that's evil? As Christians, we say, of course it's evil because we believe God has made clear that it is. I can look in his word and I can see him say, do not murder. Do not be sexually immoral. Do not go after the vulnerable. People know this. They may say there is no such thing as absolute truth, but just get them in front of the teller in the bank asking for what the balance is in their bank account, and they want absolute truth <laughs> in that moment. And yet in so many areas, life becomes a constant attempt to explain away our consciences because we know what we ought to do, and yet we do not do it. To varying degrees, we all reject the knowledge God has generally provided and that alone is sufficient to condemn us. So in this sense, general revelation is authoritative, sufficient, and clear. But it is not salvific. It alone cannot save. That's why we needed God's word. It's enough to condemn us, but it can't save us. There's not, the, the message isn't there. And so because sin blinds and distorts our perceptions of him, if we're to know what he is really like, he had to give us a revelation of himself in the Bible. Special revelation, specific revelation. So I'd like to ask you a question. When you think of describing God from the Bible, if you were to go out for coffee with someone and they asked you, Andrew, I, I understand that you believe in God. I, you, I've kind of heard you talk about that. Can you describe him to me? Can you tell me what he's like? Well, what would you say if you were Andrew in that moment? What would be the words that you would use to describe who God is? What, what would, let's, let's give one-word answers. What would be one-word answers that you could give to describe what God is like? Love. Throw them out. Merciful. Love? Merciful, eternal. justice, eternal, holy, holy. Omniscient, omnipresent. omnipresent. And then they would say, what in the world are these words? Yeah. So what, is, what does omniscient mean? Knowing all. Yep. Omniscience, he knows everything. And then? What's another, what's another omni word? Omnipresent. Omnipresent. He's everywhere, at once, fully. 
He's eternal, which is the eternal. Yeah. Omnipotent. He's which is what? What does that mean? He's all powerful. All right. So those are some good words. These words make up God's attributes. Then the next step of that would be right. It's not just the one word. You would need because what we want to do is we. We want to know God, right? We said this at the very beginning of systematic theology. The reason that we're doing this is because we want to know who God is. That, that's the ultimate here. In our, we want our affections stirred for him. And so if I tell you that my wife Susan is gracious, the next thing I'd probably do, because I would enjoy describing her to you and telling you about, is I would probably tell you a story that would that would describe what graciousness is. C.S. Lewis says this. C.S. Lewis would, would talk about how he hated adjectives. Don't give me an adjective when you write. Give me a paragraph that then I would know that's what that adjective means. Don't say it's beautiful. Describe the beauty. Don't, don't be adjectives. I think, I think he said, I think I'm remembering this right. Adjectives he said are for lazy writers. Right? So... I would want to describe to you the ways in which my wife operates that display graciousness in her. And that's what you'd want to know if you really wanted to know her better in the same way God. So when we say he's merciful, what does that mean? What does that look like? What are, what are places in the story? What are, and, and, and I would want to do that with someone, right? I, I would want, I'd want to do this. I'd want to be able to open my Bible which is another reason why we want to know this book. Like, let me show you. Let me tell you a story of his graciousness. Let me, let me describe to you his mercy by, by taking you to this spot and, and how he acted. And then you could say, and here's how I've personally experienced that mercy. Let me tell you in my own life, right? Savingly, that's another argument for the existence of God. Savingly through the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, how I've experienced his mercy. That's what we want to do. So we, we don't want these attributes to be um, dictionary-like, <laughs> right? like, like separate and, 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 and cold and distant. We, we want to put flesh on them. Uh, most systematic theologians elect to classify God's attributes by dividing them up into two main classes, incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. Does anybody know what, the, what those mean? Incommunicable versus communicable. Yes, Claude. Incommunicable would be those that are attributes of God alone and we do not have them. Right. right. And the communicable ones are the ones where being made in the image of God, we have similar attributes. Right. So think of like a communicable disease. <laughs> like you can, that's it's kind of like, right, like incommunicable, like I can't get that. I, I can't be omnipotent. Uh, I, I will not be eternal. I'm immortal. I'm immortal. You're immortal, but you're not eternal. Right, right. So from the moment, immortal means from the moment that I am, I will now never end. I'm immortal, and, and, and we won't. Like I said on Sunday, death is just a nanosecond of transference. Um, communicable attributes are the things that, as Claude said, that we share. So God is love. We exhibit love. God is just. We can be just. We can exhibit justice. God is merciful. We can be merciful. God is kind. We can be kind. God is gracious. We can be gracious. So let's first look at some incommunicable attributes of God. One, the independence or self-existence of God. What has been known uh, for centuries as the aseity of God, uh, having life from oneself. God's existence and character are determined by himself alone and are not dependent on anyone or anything else. He owns all things and he has no needs outside himself. God didn't create us because he was lonely or needed some company or, needed to complete, or he needed us to complete him. Yes, we heard Paul make that very argument, which is an, it's an important thing. 
again, I've said to you that there are a lot of tensions in the Christian life, and this is one of those tensions. God absolutely did not need us. And, And by God, I mean, when I say God, I mean capital G, capital O, capital D. That's usually how I write it to in, in my own head to recognize the Trinitarian nature of God. And if I want you to understand, like I'm speaking of the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, I will say those things, right? Three persons, one God. God was, God didn't need us to have fellowship because he was, has always been in perfect fellowship with himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jonathan Edwards, uh, this is a book by... John Piper called God's Passion for His Glory. Um, And in it is the complete text of a treatise by Jonathan Edwards entitled The End for Which God Created the World. Um, If if you ever feel like you, you know, you're kind of weightlifting and you're you're holding that five-pound dumbbell and you're kind of working that bad boy and you want to jump up to 200, then then grab this book and, and do I would love. I would love to do a seminar just working through Edward's treatise on the end for which God created the world. There, there's, there's a moment, I, I, I've worked through this in, in seminary. There's a spot in that treatise where, in, in kind of representing who we are in relationship to God, uh, he says it's as if God is a fountain. He's this eternal fountainhead that has perfect relationship in himself. And you know when you stand next to a fountain and and if, the, if a little bit of a breeze, you'll, you feel like this just slightest bit of moisture, like if the sun is shining to you, you can see this infinitesimal little particle of water that kind of come over and just like gave you a little coolness. He's like, that's us. Like, like we're just this, this overflow of the reality of the very existence and nature of God. So we're, we're as small as that little particle. So we, we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. And yet at the same time, he gave his son for us. That's like a tension, right? Like, like don't think of yourself bigger in relationship to who he is. And yet he delights in us. He loves us. He gave his son for us. He, he marked us with his image. It's just, right? These, these tensions. In the Trinity, God is self-existent, self-sufficient, self-contained. I am who I am. Exodus 3.14 his name literally being a verb expressing a constant state of existence. He needs nothing. We need hours and hours of sleep in order to keep our eyes open, water to keep us alive, food for energy, shelters for protection, doctors for our health, teachers to teach us all the things we don't know and then promptly forget. We could go on and on, right? And pagan gods need all those things. But our God, he needs Nothing. Life, strength, protection, health, knowledge. He has it completely in himself, which is exactly why we can go to him and depend on him at all times. He is the king. His word rules, literally. But he's not the kind of king who's constrained by budget deficits, a divided Congress, NATO, or the weakness of age. He is entirely free of all such constraints. Because he is dependent on nothing and no one, he is always able to be there for his people. His independence and self-existence ought to be a huge encouragement to us. A huge encouragement. Number two, the immutability, immutability, excuse me, the immutability of God. God is immutable. Namely, God in his nature, character, and purposes does not change. We have to change our plans all the time, either because we lack the necessary foresight and knowledge to anticipate all the contingencies that are going to happen in our lives, which is something I deeply, deeply despise. I just really want to be God and have his level of control. (laughs) I keep hoping my little iCal for tomorrow will be exactly the way that I've designed it. Keep thinking that, and it never, ever is. <laughs> Just when I get all caught up in the text messages, ba-ding, ba-ding, ba-ding. <laughs> Some of them introducing an unforeseen contingency into my 
life because I lack the power and ability to affect what I plan. Not so with God. <laughs> Many are the plans of a man, but God establishes his steps. God has all power and knowledge. Floods, snow, firemen, fire, potential government shutdowns. Nothing like any of those or anything else thwarts his purposes. He says this to Job, my purposes will not be thwarted. God does not, well, he doesn't wake up because he never sleeps, but God does not wake up in the morning wringing his hands. Nothing ever catches God by surprise. God never has to resort to plan B or plan C. Right? Which means he didn't in the beginning, in Genesis, in the story, go, oh no, what have they done? Okay, uh, Jesus, Spirit, let's get together here. What are we going to do? Let's, uh, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to send you. You're going to die for them. That's going to save the world. Like, that was the plan all along. It was the plan all along. Which means we can always trust him and we can always rely on his word. His word has not failed. Romans 9, anyone? He will always act in conformity with what he has promised. And so we can have confidence in him. We live as if on the surface of a restless ocean, everything shifting and changing about us. We're always trying to catch our balance in this world, but God is a rock amidst those fluctuating waters. Jesus, it says in Hebrews 6, 19, is the anchor of our souls. And so with unshakable confidence, we can stand firmly upon him. We can grasp hold of him, knowing even better that he is holding on to us. John 10, no one is able to pluck you from my hand. No one is able to pluck you from the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Some reject this teaching. They will say that God cannot know our future decisions in order for those decisions to be fully free. For if he knows them in advance, that means that they will necessarily happen, which means that the decision can't be truly free, for we only could have done what God already foreknew and nothing else. We've been wrestling with this a bit recently in the last couple of weeks, right? How can God be sovereign and, and how... Can I bear responsibility? How is it true that God ordained before time began this? What I'm doing with my hand right now. And that my brain is operating in such a way that as I speak, I, I want to do this with my hand right now. And that my ability in choosing to do that is just as real as God foreordaining and planning it so that it would happen. Do you need a Tylenol right now? Because you're getting a headache. <laughs> and those two, three, like those two things, that, that there's a, there can be a tension there. Yeah. can be a tension. It's understandable. And I, I told you a, a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning, I won't have all the answers for you. Nobody will. And if they say they do, they're trying to sell you something. right? Because he's God. So this is... Isn't this in part why the Koheleth, the, the author, the writer of Ecclesiastes, says that we should enter into his house with our mouths silent? There should be an awe when we come before him. Like we're just, I can't speak sometimes, God, because I don't know. But I can trust. Like, like for me, I'm content in unanswered questions. I'm content in mystery because he's God. I don't think he's just a great guesser. I don't think he changes his mind. Now, related to this idea of his immutability is the notion of impassibility, which literally means without emotion. If God cannot be ruled by another and is dependent on no one, is there any way in which God legitimately has feelings or emotions? It's a natural question. How can emotions be appropriate to one who is utterly independent and self-sufficient? Biblically, God has emotions. He's not the unmoved mover of Greek thought. It's just that they're not like our emotions. They're similar, 
our emotions are echoes, we're surprised, caught off guard, confused, hurt, thus we cry. In our anger, we lash out. God too may grieve, but not in the same way. When he suffers, he chooses to. His passions are real, but he's not ruled by them. Anger rules us, but God rules over anger. Those are some of the differences. So when the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that God is without parts or passions, it is not denying God's responsiveness to creaturely action. Rather, it is denying A, that God is made up of various faculties or emotions, and B, that God is taken captive by anything other than his own nature. So we don't, we don't want to project our qualities on him. We want to see his qualities and see how, at times, we're reflective of those qualities. So God anthropomorphizes himself in order to help us have some level of category and understanding of who he is. Right? God doesn't have hands or feet or eyes. But he says, I see you. Or my arm is not too short. To... He's, he, yeah, he, he's just speaking in terms so that we can... Calvin, I, I love Calvin says this, that, that um, we're, we're like little toddlers, right? And, and what do you do to a, a little toddler or to an infant when you're speaking? <laughs> right? And then they smile, right? All the speech that God is using with us is like that. Like... There, there are things he could say and like the brain matter would just like slowly start going out of our ears probably, like, right? Like it'd be that little emoji with the head exploding. He's, he condescends to us. So he is not made up of various faculties. He's not taken captive by anything other than his own nature. The biblical testimony is that while God may be opposed and provoked, He's not overcome by surprise or distress, anger or compassion. I will not vent, he says in Hosea 11.9, the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. I'm different. The Holy One among you. I will not come in rage, like an uncontrolled rage, right? That's why I have to memorize scriptures when I was getting annoyed on Monday for no reason. I was not writing a good page. And God in his grace brought back a, a scripture that I'd memorized because I, I can be angry in a way that's unrighteous. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. I'm not like you. I'm not like you, Matthew. I don't come in that kind of uncontrolled rage that opens me up to all kinds of enemy attack because you're just out of control. There's more we could say. He is God after all, but scripture is clear on this. Numbers 23.9, God is not a man. 23.19, excuse me. God is not a man that he might lie or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? 1 Samuel 15, 29. The eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind. He is not man who changes his mind. He is perfectly immutable and thus he is perfectly dependable. The infinite of infiniteness of God. Thirdly, the Bible teaches that God is infinite. This means that there is no limitation to God's perfections. His infinity is expressed in a number of ways, such as in space, in power, and in time. First, God is infinite in space. Namely, he is omnipresent. This means that God transcends spatial limitations. He is without size and is present at every point of space with his whole being. When people refer to God as being a big God, they are referring to his greatness rather than a quantitative measurement. Psalm 139 conveys this clearly when it says, Verse 7, 
Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or set or at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be like night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like day. Darkness and light are alike to you. A corollary to this is that God is spirit. John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit, in truth. So he is incorporeal. He's not made of matter. He has no parts or dimensions. Though God is wholly present throughout all things, he is yet distinct from all things. This is different than pantheism. Pantheism asserts that God minus the world equals nothing because they are perfectly identified. The Bible asserts that God minus the world equals nothing. God. He is distinct from all that he has created. So for God to move into my house would not mean that I have to move out. We think of presence as humans in terms of physicality. Not so with God. So when we read that the spirit is indwelling or abiding in a Christian, or we read that God is in heaven, it's not referring so much to location as to relationship. The Spirit indwells us in that He is present with us in a saving way. We can enter into His presence, not that we've spatially become closer to God, but that we access, through Christ, a new relationship with God where we can bring everything before the throne of His grace. So hell is not the absence of God, but the absence of God in a saving way. Hell is actually the presence of God in the fullness of His wrath. Practically speaking, God's omnipresence means that we can always, we can always be certain. Think of this. We can always be certain of God's undivided attention. <laughs> yeah, wow, Tom. Like, he's not looking at his iPhone when you're talking to him. Doesn't it drive you crazy when someone starts looking at their phone and answering it in the middle of a sentence that you are uttering? We don't need to stand in line. We don't need to make an appointment. We don't have to take a religious pilgrimage to Jerusalem or the quote-unquote holy land. We are in his presence. What a comfort and a warning. Because... His undivided attention means we have no place to hide. There is no corner of the universe where God is not. He sees it all. Jean-Paul Sartre did not like this. He called God the cosmic voyeur. He hated the idea that God is everywhere because it means we're accountable. Hide and seek is not a game we can play with God in our sins. Why do you think strip clubs are always windowless? I don't, I'm, I'm hiding. Yeah. I, want, I don't want anybody, anything to see this. Hide and seek is not a game that we can play with God in our sins. So we should not deceive ourselves. So if you're trying to hide, just come out and confess it. You're not fooling God. Be reconciled to him. Sometimes we think, I don't want to say, I don't want to say that to him. That thing you just said in your head that he heard. <laughs> But God's not just omnipresent. He's also infinite in power. He's omnipotent. God is able to do all that he decides to do. Jesus tells us, with God, all things are possible. Matthew 19, 26. Jeremiah declares, O Yahweh God, you yourself made the heavens and earth by your great power and, without, and with your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Jeremiah 32, 17. Did you hear that? Nothing is too hard for God. Does this mean that God can do everything? He can't contradict his nature, can't lie. Oh, I love that answer, Claude. Classic freshman year of college question. Can God make a rock so big he cannot move it? But that question presents a false dilemma based off a false assumption that God can do everything anything. It's better to say that God can do everything by saying, as Claude just said, 
God can do everything that he wills to do and is consistent with his character. Hebrews 6.18 tells us God cannot lie. 2 Timothy 2.13, we find that God cannot deny himself. God cannot cease to be God or act in a way that is inconsistent with any of his other attributes. God's omnipotence is a great encouragement. Four, a God who can feel but not help is of little use. God's omnipotence is a comfort in our persecution. Psalm 27.1, Yahweh is my light in my salvation. Whom should I fear? Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? His omnipotence is a comfort in our prayers. Now to him who is able to do above or beyond all that I could ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. God's omnipotence gives us confidence in the future. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Am I going to make it to the end? Am I going to endure? Will I fail? Will I fall? He's able to make me stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. So to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Messiah, our Master, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. So, if God does not answer our prayers or respond in a particular way, which is an answer, right? Like, we, we mess up sometimes, just a little quibble with maybe how we talk sometimes. Well, he didn't answer my prayer. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. He said, he's going to say either yes, not right now, or no. He, he's always answering our prayers. And it's not because... If God doesn't do something we think he should do or want him to do, it's not because he doesn't have the power to. And so we trust his wisdom, which we're going to talk about next week. Finally, God is infinite in time. He is eternal. Psalm chapter 90 verse 2 reads, Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity you are God. And in the revelation of John, we hear God say, Revelation twenty-two thirteen, 13, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This doesn't mean that God is everywhere in time. It's not what it means. It means that he transcends time. He transcends the very limitations of time. He has no beginning or end. Some have likened time to a long parade and, and we're in the parade marching along experiencing only one section whereas God stands on top of a mountain seeing all of it at once. It's not passing him by. He's fully able to see all of it at once that he created and is controlling and operating within at times. Right, that's the, the metaphor that I gave you of of author, director, character of the story. Practically, what does this mean? It means that God will always be there for us. Always. He won't be that friend who ever moves away, or worse, dies. He always was and always will be, and thus he always is. And he's there for us. Isn't this what the Word made flesh promised? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of what? Not the world. Okay, let's, let's make sure that we're good biblicists here. There's not another world that we're going to. This is where we'll be. It'll be remade. It'll be a new heaven's new earth. So it's the end of this age. I'll be with you to the end of this age and into the next age. Brothers and sisters, God is not like us. Hallelujah. He is majestic and glorious. He is perfectly self-sufficient with perfect plans, perfect power, covering everything all the time.
And before you leave, ask yourself this one question. In light of all of this, is there any reason why you cannot place your affections, your security, and your well-being in Him to the end that you do not need to worry or be anxious or afraid? If He is who He is, isn't that who we could be? Believing in Him? Isn't this why Jesus gently says, do not be anxious and do not be afraid. Like he's not saying that condemning. Like you go to him and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm anxious. <laughs> That's okay, because his heart is for you. And then he's going to be honest with you and say, don't be, but don't be. Don't be anxious or afraid. Don't fear. Doesn't he take care of little birds, little sparrows? Oh my God, doesn't he? Like when you walk through the, when you are on a hike, are you amazed at the birds and they're flitting in there, getting all this? Like, yeah. Yeah. He's doing that. He will care for you. Let me pray. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments, O oh God, and how untraceable are your ways. Who has known your mind? None of us has fully, perfectly. None of us have ever been your counselor. We've never given to you, God, that we should be repaid. And from you and through you and to you are all things. And to you be the glory forever and ever in our lives. And so because of these truths, because of who you are, oh God, I ask that we would walk into the rest of this evening in comfort and peace. The world could be crazy. There, there's still going to be burdens that we carry. Absolutely, God. Yes, get that. We're not ignoring that. There's going to be weighty things. But in you, we can have a peace that passes all understanding as you guard our hearts and our minds in Messiah, Jesus. You pr that's a promise. And so we want to depend on that. Help us to sleep tonight like we believe it. When we put our heads on the pillows, keep our minds from racing and worrying because tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. And Staying awake up late and getting up early, eating the bread of anxious toil is not what you have for us because you give to your beloved sleep, Psalms 127 promises. Give us that kind of sleep and we just trust knowing that you're at the gate because you never sleep and you never slumber. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.